not that strong at all. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. What a great day this is. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts, the book of Acts. In the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you come to Acts. The first four are the Gospels. They tell us a lot about Jesus, and then we see the the work of the Holy Spirit in the church in the book of Acts. Uh, This is a primer for a new teaching series we're heading into uh, next weekend on prayer, experiencing awe and intimacy with God. Can't wait, it's gonna be a wonderful series. And that'll take us all the way uh, to Easter and then we'll wrap it up about three weeks after Easter. But as I said, this is a primer. We're talking about revival, a biblical theology. And I want to begin by reading to you some quotes here uh, from a book by Francis Chan. It's called Forgotten God, Reversing Our Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what he says. This is part of the introduction and then into the first chapter. I'm willing to bet that there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year, speaking of the Holy Spirit. The benchmark of success in church services has become more about attendance than the movement of the Holy Spirit. The entertainment model of church was largely adapted in the 1980s, 90s, and it's gone all all the way into the 2000s. And, uh, And while it alleviated some of our boredom for a couple hours a week. It filled our churches with self-focused consumers rather than self-seeking servants attuned to the Holy Spirit. And then I continue reading into the next chapter. He says this, even our church growth can happen without him, let's be honest. If you combine a charismatic speaker, a talented worship band, and some hip creative events, people will attend your church. Yet this does not mean that the Holy Spirit of God is actively working and moving in the lives of people who are coming. It simply means that you have created a space that is appealing enough to draw people in for an hour or two on Sunday. It certainly does not mean that people walk out of the doors moved to worship and in awe of God. People are more likely to describe the quality of the music or the appeal of the sermon than the one, the one God who is the reason people gather for church in the first place. Take a look at uh, the intro on your sermon notes. We continue reading. This is also part from this book. When believers live in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit, the evidence in their lives will be supernatural. The church can't help but be more beautiful, and the world can't help but be more attracted. I like that. It's good stuff. And so we're talking about revival. We're talking really a a biblical theology. What does that mean, the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives? You'll see the notes. uh, we got three questions we're looking at. What is revival? And then we're going to answer the question, what three things happen in revival? And what are the theological marks of revival? I think our text will certainly help us with each of those three. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Once again, let's go before the throne of grace. Father God, it doesn't doesn't make sense that you, the creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, would have children characterized by anything less than the supernatural, anything less than, than the wealth of your presence, the comfort of your love, the strength of your power, For you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 makes that very clear. And you promised us in in Romans 8.11 that if the spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, that he would give life to our mortal bodies. So we pray through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, that we would experience your presence, your power, your peace, and a pleasure, a pleasure in you unlike ever before, turning us into self-sacrificing servants, displaying your breathtaking beauty and magnificent glory 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. amen. Take a look at this uh, text. So we've got the, the work of the Holy Spirit in that first century church. So uh, what does that look like and how should it look in our lives? And uh, Jesus is resurrected from the grave. Pretty exciting times for the disciples. He spends 40 days with the disciples before he ascends into heaven. <clears throat> and they're kind of wondering, when is this all going to come down? He says, don't be preoccupied with eschatology, with in-time in things. This is what I want you to do, and this is what I want you to know. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. And he talks about this kind of concentric circles all the way from your hometown to your backyard to all the way to the end of the earth. He says, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria, cross-cultural, and to the end of the, the earth. And then, of course, we know that he ascends. There's kind of a crisis in their heart a bit because they're going, okay, what do we do now? And so they go to this uh, upper room, this place, and 120 of them, they're pouring out their heart to God. And guess what? We've got chapter two, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And it's so easy for us, and I come from a very Pentecostal background, so the tendency is to be preoccupied with the tongues of fire and the speaking in tongues. But there's something much more important than that, because you don't always see that each time the Holy Spirit is poured out. Uh, jump to verse 11 in chapter two. So the Holy Spirit is being poured out. And he's gone through a whole list of people that are on the outside listening in. They're going, what is going on with all this ruckus? These people are praying, and we hear them in all of our languages. It says both Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians. That's just the end of the list there. <clears throat> we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That's what you want to focus on. So they're, they're overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory of, of God and what... God has done through Jesus Christ. There's something happening in their hearts and their lives. They're seeing, they're savoring the beauty and the glory of Christ, and now they're showing that to the world around. And all were amazed, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, hey, they're filled with new wine. Oh, they're just drunk. Isn't that interesting? And it's, when you study in Paul's letters in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he compares uh, the spirit-filled life with being drunk. You guys remember that? Don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, kind of a life out of control, but be, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So why would he liken it, and why are they thinking these people are drunk? What's, what's the similarities here? Well, being drunk and being spirit-filled are alike and unalike. They are alike in the fact that they both make you uh, very, very happy and courageous, okay? <clears throat> they do. And, but they're unalike in how they do that. Uh, getting drunk, the reason why you're happy and courageous, even if you're going through bad times, is because it decreases your inhibitions. It, it lowers your, uh, your being in touch with reality. Your reality kind of diminishes before you. That's the reason why people, when they're going through hard times, they want to drink, because it decreases reality to where the work of the Holy Spirit increases our reality. Our reality of what? The reality of the mighty works of God. It begins to dawn on you. You go, whoa, God is for me. He adores me. He gave his life for me. I mean, so there's something that begins to stir up within you. You just go, oh my goodness, I can face anything. And that's, that's really what's, what's happening here. So, so the mighty works of God, that's what they're proclaiming. And... Um, and so there's this, there's this joy and there's a courage. And then Peter stands up, but Peter standing with the 11 lifted his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words for these people are not drunk as you suppose. These guys aren't drunk since it's only you know, the third hour, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Though I have worked around people that were drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Not on the fire department, but when I worked construction. <clears throat> Guys were pretty uh, loaded by that time. It was like, this is dangerous, this is crazy. Get them off the job site. <clears throat> so I mean, it can happen, but it's, he's just saying, hey, it's not happening here. But this is, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he goes back to the Old Testament and he's saying, hey, this was predicted years ago. And he begins to quote Joel. Old Testament prophet, 
And in the last days, so we, we're living in the last days, the last days began with the first coming of Jesus, they end with the second coming of Jesus. That's what we long for is his second coming. And so we're living in the last days. So this is the time right now. And in the last days it shall be, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So we're living in that time right now. God pouring his spirit out upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So notice he's just saying, hey, there's, God is no respecter of persons. There's no favoritism here. doesn't matter what your gender, your status, your social status. I'm going to pour out my spirit on anybody and everybody. That's the idea here. And... Uh, and in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And then uh, he continues on here, talks a little bit more about a uh, little eschatology, and then he preaches the gospel. And we know what the gospel is. The gospel is that you and I are sinners saved by Christ's works, not our works. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful that uh, he came to rescue us. We've been rescued from peril, John 3.16. He loved us so much, he sent his son. And basically, that's what he's telling, is what he's saying. Now, jump to verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What is that? That's conviction. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have, you can have the same experience that these guys are experiencing, these guys and gals are experiencing. Now, it's not up, it shouldn't, probably not up on your, uh, I jumped to verse 41, but let me go ahead and read verse 39 and 40. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Verse 41 now. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then we go into the description of that first century church, which should be really the description of what we should look like, what we should be experiencing. It says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves. In other words, they were consistently diligent in these things. These were really important things to them, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. And day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord to us. Now, what I want to do is uh, you'll notice on the notes I gave you some other places where the Holy Spirit, uh, that experience of the Holy Spirit, Spirit-filled, God pouring His Holy Spirit out. Uh, Acts 4.31, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Acts 4.31, so... I mean, this thing is exploding. They're beginning to go out on the streets telling about Jesus, this resurrected Lord and Savior who conquered death and sin and Satan, and they are stoked, they are excited, and the religious leaders get jealous, and they say, hey, knock this stuff off. Don't be telling about Jesus, because they're stirring up quite a commo commotion. There's 3,000 people that come to Christ. I mean, this, this church is growing. There's some crazy stuff happening here. And so they threaten the apostles and say, hey, don't, don't talk about Jesus anymore. They go back and tell the group, that first church, and what do they do? Do they pray that God would take the heat off? No, they don't pray that the persecution would stop. They pray, God, give us the boldness. In fact, in verse 31, it says, and when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit so you don't see the tongues of fire or the speaking in tongues, but what you see here is they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So the Holy Spirit comes upon them, 
And they, they speak the Word of God with boldness. In fact, we see here from this point on, you're going to begin to see some martyrs, people who are willing to give their life for the cause of Christ. Let me take you to uh, one case in particular, a martyr, Stephen. Look at uh, chapter 7. Turn over to chapter 7 and look at verse 55. So Stephen proclaims the gospel. There's some people pretty ticked about that. Which, by the way, when you proclaim the gospel, you're going to either have a riot or revival, Okay. Uh, and uh, if people walk away just kind of yawning, they, they didn't understand it. They didn't really hear it. And so you're going to hear, you're going to have a response of either riot or revival. He's getting a bit of a riot here, and they're going to stone him. And in verse 55, chapter 7, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of, of God. Typically, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. But it's almost like he's, he's standing, waiting for Stephen. Come on, Stephen, you're coming home, dude. Can't wait to get you up here. And, and sure enough, he dies right here. I mean, he takes some rocks to the head, and it's over for him. And he goes right to be with, with Jesus with the Lord. It's a pretty, pretty fascinating story. I gave you some other verses there. So when you look throughout the, whole, the New Testament, you, you can see kind of this pattern. There's crisis, there's a seeking of God, then there's this visitation by God, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then you've got this world impact that happens as a result of it. Now, when you go into the Old Testament, there's actually, in the Old Testament, there's these cycles of, of decline and revival. So the, the best book that represents this idea of revival would be the book of Judges. We're going to actually study this at the end of this prayer series. And it's, it's a crazy book, man. I'm calling it, we're going to call it uh, Braveheart because that's exactly what it is. It's a, pretty, it's a bloodbath, but, but what's interesting, we're calling it, and the subtitle will be Courage in a World of Compromise. And uh, what you see, and you can read this on your own, in Judges chapter 3, you see this cycle, uh, cycle of decline and then revival. And what happens is that the people become complacent. Christians, the, the people of God, Israel becomes complacent. And what happens when we become complacent? We don't have that fervency for God. Compromise. Guess what compromise brings? Brings chaos, man. It brings all sorts of consequences. And then before long, we're crying out to God. Oh, God, help me. And that's what they're doing. They're crying out to God. God sends a judge, a ruler, a leader. And, and then there's this covenant renewal, this revival that begins to take place. And they keep going through this same cycle over and over again. So we'll spend some time in that book at the end of this prayer series. But... But you can see that. And so let's, let's answer the question. First of all, what is revival? There's three common views. The first one is charismatic. This is what I was most familiar with growing up, an increase in extraordinary manifestations of the Holy Spirit, miracles, healings, prophecy, revelations. And what I found interesting about this is being involved in this is that there can be a, a preoccupation with the gifts over the giver. I saw that happen a lot. Now, what's interesting about this, when you study... Uh, the Bible and also church history with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, various times in church history when the Holy Spirit was being poured out upon a group of people, uh, you don't always see this manifestation, this extraordinary manifestation of miracles and healings and prophecy and revelation. So you do see it from time to time, and I thank God for it. I've experienced it. I've seen it happen. But that's not primarily what revival is. There's something else that we need to be focused on, not so much the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and it creates this preoccupation with gifts over the gift giver. And then there's the fundamentalist view. And um, this is an increase in energetic and enthusiastic evangelistic efforts. You know, evangelistic crusades, revival meetings, personal witnessing. And I never quite understood this. I don't know if my church ever did this. Maybe they did do kind of revival meetings, but I had some Baptist friends that they would do these revival meetings. I don't know how you can do this. You set up a sign, revival from June 1st to June the 7th. Like you can make that happen? And typically what it was, it was about some evangelist coming in, browbeating everybody to go out and bring in more people. And he just beat you up until you get people in there. And, and, and that's not revival, by the way. And in fact, um, in revival, certainly, I mean, you're gonna see people come to faith but evangelistic fervor is something that, uh, uh, that is not forced, but it overflows from a lifestyle of walking with Christ. I mean, it's just going to become a part of it. Believe me, 
When, you're, when you are alive to the reality of what God is doing in and through your life, you're going to tell the world. You, you want everyone to know and to experience. And then the secular perspective of this idea of revival is that it's primitive, emotionally cathartic events occurring among uneducated people who are subject to psychological manipulation by evangelists. And it just flat out gets weird. And there were some things that happened here in the valley not too long ago that there was just some really weird stuff that happened that they were classifying as a revival. You know, um, people clucking like chickens and roaring like lions. And it's just, it got, it got really weird. And sometimes when people start focusing on them, these kind of weird manifestations, it does get way out there. And there is this thing called sociological manipulation. I've seen it. I've been in environments where that happened. And where you got a guy up there and he can work the crowd up and get them all into, you know, and, and yeah, people will be do doing somersaults in their chairs. They almost have to because they're kind of in, in this environment. And that's not revival. That's not revival. Not to say that God can, you know, show up in a lot of pretty interesting ways, but, uh, but the, what revival really is, is, look at your notes, spiritual revival is an intensified work of the Holy Spirit. Not just, not extraordinary, but ordinary, intensified, ordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you look at the Holy Spirit and you see, well, what, what is the Holy Spirit supposed to be doing in our life? What does He do in our life? Well, this is what He does. The work of the Holy Spirit is to make the person and work of Christ more real. So out of all the things that happen in revival, this is what you should be expecting more than anything, that Christ is more real to you. John chapter, uh, chapters 14 through 16, this is what Jesus says. He tells his disciples, I'm not gonna abandon you because they knew that he was leaving. And they're like, they're freaking out a little bit. Hey, we've been with you. I, we thought you were gonna bring the kingdom and usher it in, and, and now you're gonna leave? He goes, I'm not gonna abandon you. I'm not gonna leave you as orphans. In fact, I'm gonna send to you another comforter. And what's interesting about that, another not of a different kind, but of the same kind, just as I was with you. So imagine if you had Jesus with you in flesh and blood, walking with you each and every day throughout your day, guiding, empowering, directing, giving you the truth, that would be pretty amazing. Well, he's just saying that the Holy Spirit will operate in the same way that he was with his disciples. That's pretty, pretty fantastic. I want that. That's what he's saying. And he will tell you about me. He will exalt me. And that's what it says when you read John 14 through 16. This is what Jesus is saying as it relates to the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a major difference between the omnipresence of God you know what I'm talking about when I say omnipresence of God. Turn to the person next to you, see if they know what the theological understanding is behind the omnipresence of God. What does that mean? Real quick, do that. Okay, anybody know what that means? What does omnipresence of God mean? He's everywhere present, so he's here, but there's a difference between the omnipresence of God and the manifested presence of God. Yeah, we all know that he's, he's everywhere present, but there's something, and this is what we're talking about here, is this manifested presence of God, a visitation, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So many theologians call it the felt presence of God. You feel as though you are dealing with God personally. And uh, it is one thing to have Christ living in your heart objectively. It's altogether another to have him living in your heart subjectively. It's the difference between having a concept of God and having the reality of God deep within your heart. And it makes all the difference in your world. And by the way, listen to me. This is what your heart longs for more than anything. This is what you were created for, to have a sense of the presence of God. You were meant to walk with God in the cool of the day, in the garden, and experience Him, and have Him look into your eyes and see that He adores you more than anything, that He created you. So that's part of this idea. And I love what St. Augustine says in his book, Confessions, our hearts are forever restless until we find our rest in God. 
And some of you aren't in touch with that because you just keep medicating yourself. You just chase after all kinds of things, you know, more work and more money and nicer car and a different relationship. And that's just a way of medicating. If you'd slow down between those happiness highs, you'd see that there's a deep longing within your heart that only God can satisfy. That's what you long for. And uh, the problem is that we're, we just get too busy. We must, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Francis Chan, in his book, in this book, he talks about a couple things that keep us from being sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and, and one is comfort. We're just way too comfortable. I mean, why would we need the comforter if we're always comfortable? Well, that makes sense. Unless we're really putting ourselves out for God. We're taking a risk. We're walking across the street, telling our friends about Jesus, or getting involved in, in some kind of uh, spiritual you know, evangelistic effort or, or doing something for Christ. But by the way, you don't even have to do that and you're gonna experience some discomfort. Nancy and I, the other night, uh, Friday night, we were with a, cup, a couple that they were experiencing some discomfort. Their newborn baby had to go in for surgery. They were quite frightened and we spent some time with them. And we, uh, you know, and this is what I love about m- ministry. I, mean, I, I don't do anything, I just point to Jesus and, and Jesus shows up and in comforts, you know, and he's there with them. And that's what happened. That these, these folks that were stressed went from stress to everything's gonna be okay. What was that? It wasn't anything we did, it was just the work of the Holy Spirit. So you can experience discomfort in your life and boy, what a wonderful opportunity for you to experience the comforter, the Holy Spirit. I know that some of you are experiencing a terrible disturbance in your life right now, either in your marriage or in your job, financially. And I want you to know that it's, this is a wonderful opportunity for you to experience God in a way that you've never experienced Him before. And uh, that's part of it. So what is it? Oh, so I said comfort, and the other one is volume. We got too much volume in our life. I said that's what Francis Chan said, comfort, and then we got too much volume. I mean, when was the last time you turned off the radio, got away from the internet, turned off the TV, got away from all of your yakking friends, you know, and you, it was just you and God. And you know, when I do that, it takes a while before I really even get a sense of His presence on my heart, where I have that felt presence of God. It takes a while. I got so much noise going on around me and inside of me, and so it's really important to be able to do that. And this is what you're going to experience this uh, spiritual revival is an intensified work of the Holy Spirit, making Christ more real. You're going to experience conviction of sin because you're going to begin to realize, man, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. And, and you need to know the difference between conviction and condemnation. Because I have people that will walk out of our service sometimes and they'll go, man, I'm not going back there. I don't need to be told how bad I am every week. And I'm, I'm sorry that you, you, know, you feel that that's what we do here, but it's probably the work of the Holy Spirit and you're allowing the enemy to get in there to push you away from God because conviction actually draws you to God. Condemnation pushes you away, and so you've got to know the difference between the two. And so when, you, when you're convicted, as they did in this, they were convicted, what did they do? They said, what do, we, what do we do? Yes, we want this. We want more of Him. And that brings confidence in God's grace. So first of all, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. So yeah, what he did for me was indispensable. There was no other way. And yet he did it for me because he loved me. He loved me so much. And it's amazingly costly. The Son of God bled and died for you. That's crazy. So it's indispensable, it's costly, and then you're captivated by the, God's presence. So you got conviction of sin, confidence, in God's grace, and typically the conviction of sin is that you're, it's probably because you're preferring something other than God. You're preferring, you're, you're more in love with something in this world as opposed to God, and that's what he's wanting to eliminate so you can experience more of him in your life. And his grace is sufficient as he leads us and guides us, and we're just captivated by his presence. Christ is more real to me than anything. See, it's one thing to know God loves you, it's another thing to be enveloped with a sense of his love on your heart, I mean, it changes everything about you. I mean, you, you don't care what people think anymore. I mean, you just, you're not affected. You know, the people-pleasing tendencies within all of us, you stop worrying about yourself, you begin to, to reach out and begin to serve others. I love the song, this last song we sang. 
talks about God's steadfast love. It's, it's, I think it's based on uh, Psalm 63.3. His steadfast love is better than life. There's nothing in this life that compares to his steadfast love. There's a the statement in there that says, it overwhelms and satisfies my soul. And then it talks about, I'll never have to be afraid. See, that, that's the work of his love on your heart. Not just the concept, but the reality deep in your heart. See, and that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the Spirit-filled life. That's what you want more, more than anything. And the result of, of a very high assurance of, of his love has a remarkable impact, not only on your life, but on the people's lives around you. And there's nothing better than to have the assurance that the most important and the most powerful being in the universe adores you as his child. Nothing compares to that. Nothing whatsoever. That's why he says in, uh, in Romans 8, uh, 15 and 16, that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We cry out, Abba, Daddy. See, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the spirit-filled life working. And that's, it's, it's an amazing thing. And uh, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on a whole congregation, and, and, and I've seen, seen that from time to time. I've gotten glimpses of it. I was uh, raised in the... I was in my teenage years in the 70s and saw the Jesus revolution and there was just this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, amazingly. It was kind of the starting of the Calvary Chapel movement and you saw a lot of stuff happen as a result of that. It was just the church I was attending at the time, there was just such an excitement about Jesus. People were coming to faith and we've actually seen it in the history of Desert Breeze. There have been times in different locations when we were over in the, in the nightclub. Oh my goodness, we just, we, were, we took off over there. People were coming to faith. We were, I don't know if you guys remember this, we were baptizing them in a big tub or a big swimming pool, like a doughboy swimming pool out, <laughs> out in the parking lot. And we, we were baptizing people, you know, left and right. People were coming to faith. There was an excitement. There was an enthusiasm. It's almost like this, this sense when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the whole congregation. I mean, the impact it has on the community is remarkable. And uh, I've got to, let me ask you some questions here just to, just to think about this just a bit, just to kind of... Uh, marinate in what we're talking as it relates to the Holy Spirit. This is actually from Tim Keller, Questions for Sleepy and Nominal Christians. And this was actually, uh, they're called the Experience Meeting by William Williams based on the Welsh revivals during the Great Awakening. And he would ask people to share about these types of questions in small group settings each week. Let me ask you this. How real has God been to your heart this week? How clear and vivid is his assurance and certainty uh, of God's forgiveness and fatherly love? To what degree is that real to you right now? See, this is the kind of stuff that I, I seek after for myself and for everybody in our congregation. Man, I want you to know God and not just know about him, but to know and to experience him. Are you having any particular seasons of delight in God? Do you really sense his presence in your life? Sense him giving you his love? Have you been finding scripture to be alive and active instead of just being a book? Do you feel like scripture is coming after you? I mean, do you read the scripture and there's times of, oh my goodness, that's exactly what I needed today. Oh, I'm gonna take that with me throughout the day. Are you finding certain biblical promises extremely precious and encouraging? Which ones? Would you, would you say, hey, check this out. This is what I was reading. You gotta hear this, man. Are you around people that do that? Are you finding God challenging you or calling you to something through his word? In what ways? See, that would be evidence that, man, you're, you're spirit-filled. You're walking in the reality of all that he has for you. Are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now that you have his, uh, now that you have as in the past, that you, there's something happening. This is what's crazy about this thing. I've been doing this for a real long time. You know, and there's a lot of pastors and I, I, my heart breaks for them. They burn out. I'm not even close to burning out, okay? <laughs> this is crazy. I'm like picking up pace. 
I've never been more stoked over the gospel than I am today. He's becoming more real and more alive to me. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I can't wait until I'm 80 years old. This is so good. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. Are you finding God's grace more glorious and moving now than you have in the past? Are you conscious of a growing sense of the evil in your heart? Mm-hmm, yes I am. And in response, a growing dependence on and grasp of the preciousness of the mercy of God? And you put all that together, that's a growing understanding of the grace of God. So, okay. So what three things happen in revival? So that's a little bit of what that spirit filled like. What three things? Sleepy Christians wake up. I mean, you're not coming to church just checking the church box, man. You are, you're dialed in. You want God more than anything. You're experiencing his presence in your life. You, you, you wake up to the reality of Romans 12, 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. You have zeal, you have spiritual fervor. You've never been more stoked. And then nominal Christians get converted. What is that? Well, this is what I f- have found even here at Desert Breeze is that, uh, that there'll be people who have signed the card, walk the aisle. You guys know what walk the aisle is, the altar call. We don't do altar calls here, but there are people that come up and we'll pray for, and there are people that make a confession of faith, and that does happen here. But uh, people who have signed the card, walk the aisle, or got dunked in the tank, and then later on in their life, all of a sudden, boom, something happens in their life, and they realize, wait a minute, maybe I was just going through the motions. I've never been more alive to His grace now. It makes more sense to me than ever before. And it's like, a, you know, it's this... Uh, there's just something that happens to them that they realize, oh, maybe I'm not sure if I was even a Christian back then. I might have just been doing what everybody else was doing, but now I know I am. And I see that. I see that happen in a church. Even people that were involved in, you know, helping out with Sunday school or just attending regularly, all of a sudden, boom, an epiphany. They're awake. And what this does, it beautifies the church with greater manifestation of the fruit and the gifts. We see this in Acts 2, 42 through 47. No other human community can achieve the kind of beauty that a Christian church can achieve through a visitation of God's presence, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think about this. Everybody look up here just for a minute. If it is true that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came to dwell within you, You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the holy God, the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. He lives within you. Is there any trial too big for the Holy Spirit that dwells within you to help you to overcome? Is there any temptation too too big to allure you away from him? No. I mean, think about that just for a minute. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. The Bible's clear about that, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 19 through 20. I mean, so let me ask you this. Shouldn't there be a big difference between the person who has the Spirit of God living in him and the person who doesn't? Yeah. Like major. And I think that that's why, you know, maybe we got too much comfort and too much volume going on. We're not sensitive to his voice and what he's wanting to do in our lives. Listen to me. This is the best life. This is an amazing life. There's no rock star, movie star, athletic star out there that can even come to the kind of life that we have through the indwelling power, presence, peace of the Holy Spirit. There's no amount of, of wealth or wisdom or or strength, you know, or or anything. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he what? He knows God. You've got God in your life. That's Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. So we have God. We have God. Let me ask you this. Has Has anyone ever been amazed at your love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's Galatians 5, 22 through 23, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine what it would be like to never worry or get stressed out 
because you have the peace of God ruling your heart and mind through Christ Jesus? Can you imagine always responding with love and kindness no matter how hateful people are towards you? Can you imagine being so filled with the joy of the Lord that regardless of your circumstances, because you know that you can trust his loving and wise control and he's gonna work everything for your good and his glory. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And what happens, here's the third thing. So sleepy Christians wake up, nominal Christians get converted. And there's a beauty to the church and therefore hard to reach people come to church and are converted. Um, I have... I hang out in a couple different groups and it's really amazing that this, in this one particular group there's a guy that would be classified as one of these hard to reach guys that he got reached, okay? He got, the, the Lord got a hold of his life a number of years ago and you've, some of you have heard his testimony here but it's just, it's, he's one of those guys I look at, look at him sometimes and go, what the heck? What happened to you? And I know it was just God. God invaded his life with his grace and changed him and he was one of these hard to reach and he came into the church and saw Christ active and working in other people's lives and it, it lit him up, man. He came to faith in Jesus Christ and that's what happens. People that you would think, this is the last person I'd ever think that come to faith and they come to faith. They come to faith. So what are the theological marks of revival? Let's knock these out. So it's a mistake to think you can uh, bring these things about completely through your planning and programming. But it is also a mistake to think uh, we just sit and wait passively for God to do, to do it to us somehow. And you'll notice that I've got here, I'm not giving you methods, but theological marks. How do you get revival? First Kings chapter 18, Elijah builds an altar and God brings the fire. So we've got to learn how to build an altar in uh, you build an altar by going after these theological marks and then you pray that God would bring the fire. And then you just say, God, bring the fire, bring your presence, bring your power. And so you, this is what you go after and this is what it looks like. And you can tell that God's really working in your life when you have these characteristics. This is right from uh, the second chapter of Acts. So here's the first thing, theological depth. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Self-help, how-to messages are unsatisfying. And that's, you know what, America is loaded up with a lot of self-help and how-to. You can go to church nowadays and you can hear basically what you, the same thing you would get from Dr. Phil or Oprah. It's not, there's not much difference. It's more self-help, how-to. But see, if you've encountered Christ, that doesn't satisfy anymore because the gospel has never become more real to you. And in fact, uh, the gospel becomes the most amazing message you've ever heard. And so the gospel gets recovered in these kind of churches where the Holy Spirit's really working. And, and it's, the gospel is believed and communicated in newly vital and vivid ways. And it's recovered either from legalism or antinomianism. And this is the, when the gospel is preached, sometimes in, in churches, you see these two extremes. Antinomianism is anti-law, it's liberalism. And so it is recovered from, from both of these extremes. The gospel is not that you are saved by works, that's legalism. And the gospel is, is not that once you are saved, it doesn't matter how you live, that's antinomianism, that's liberalism. But the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith alone, but by a faith that is never alone, but issues in holiness of life. It transforms your life. You're wanting more and more to live for Christ. Here's the next thing is that it brings sweet repentance. They were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? As Christians, we shouldn't be critical, and yet at the same time, we shouldn't be afraid to confront or to be confronted. So we should speak the truth in love, and we should be able to hear the truth. And this is a major mark between real revival and just kind of an emotionalism. You can tell that the difference between real revival and emotionalism is that if it's just emotionalism, there's gonna be this boastful, abrasive defensiveness when confronted. But if it's real revival and God's really working in your heart, there's gonna be this humble, gentle, teachable attitude. What do we do? So when my wife comes to me pointing her finger at me, I'm not gonna be defensive towards her. I'm gonna say, hey, what do I need to do? I love you. I'm gonna be open, I'm gonna be receptive. 
I'm going to be teachable, or if people in this church do the same, or, or whatever. There's just that, that sweet repentance, because you don't want anything to interfere with your relationship with God or your love of, of the people that God has placed in your life. And then I like number three, it's vibrant worship. I mean, there's vibrant worship, both personal and corporate. Man, you love spending time with God. You love His presence. You crank up the music at home and dance around the house because nobody can see you, and uh, you open up His Word, and you can do that for hours. You would much rather do that than turn on the TV or go surf the Internet or anything else. You just love hanging out with God. You love His presence. And... uh, and you'll see this, you see this happening with this, uh, this early church, verse 43, awe came upon every soul, verse 46, with glad and generous hearts, verse 47, praising God. Because everyone knows that God is here. Well, if you knew that God is here, it's going to change the way that you sing those songs. I'm singing this for God. And there's two parts to, to worship, to true worship. There's seeing God with your mind, that's the truth, and then savoring God with your heart, that's the spirit. So we are to worship God in spirit and in truth, as it tells us in John 4, 24. So these songs should have stirred something up within you because they're very biblically based. So there's the seeing of God and then savoring Him, enjoying Him, And so there's this vibrant worship. Worship is the soul-satisfying and life-liberating feasting on the multidimensional beauty and glory of God. And vibrant worship happens when, when people know that they will die of spiritual thirst and hunger unless they have God because they know that in His presence is fullness of joy and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. They know that His steadfast love is better than life. We, we did a linger night, a prayer and praise night not too long ago, and if you missed it, man, you missed a great night. <laughs> I, when I started that night, I got up and kind of led it, and, we, and our, our band was up here, and they did a phenomenal job uh, led by Josh, and, and uh, the setting was just, it was absolutely wonderful, but I started weeping right from the get-go, and I could not stop throughout. I was just overwhelmed with the presence of God in this place. And uh, there were people that were, there were some distractions I was told later that were in there. I was oblivious to the distractions, okay? And the youth were in here, the youth were in here, and they came up. There were some youth that came up that you guys sent me right to the, everyone that came up and prayed and read Scripture. Oh my goodness, that was awesome. You have no idea what that did to my heart. It was phenomenal. And uh, we're going to do more of those. But there's something about just lingering in His presence, this vibrant worship. And then intimate fellowship, that creates intimate fellowship. See, if you're connecting vertically, you're going to connect horizontally with people. You're going to want to get with other Christians. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Verse 46, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. In fact, this is what you're going to find out that the more intimate fellowship we have, the less we'll need counseling, therapy, and antidepressants, really. We are so mired in so much psychological and emotional issues that really the remedy is connecting vertically and horizontally. And, and there are those small groups, when I'm with folks, I love hearing them share about what God's doing in their heart because it stirs up appetite within me. I absolutely love it. That's why I love getting together. I'm in about three different small groups. And I'm thinking about starting about six more, Okay. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing because you just want that, that intimate fellowship. And then in contagious evangelism, verses 41 and 47, and the Lord added to their number. I mean, you can have church growth without revival. And oftentimes I've gone to churches here in the valley that were just taken off. They were growing like crazy. And I was wondering, I always ask this with my question, is that revival or is that just good marketing? And I hate to say it, but sometimes it's primarily just good marketing. Very little has to do with real revival. And it's just, hey, they're, they're good at entertaining folks. And it really has nothing to do with, with God or the Holy Spirit. But, uh, but you can't have revival without church growth. When God is working like what we're talking about, it is absolutely impossible for you to keep your mouth shut around your friends. You just want to share with them. And then there's a social concern, verse 45, selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, when you study church history, the impact of the first century church, it was their radical or their racial inclusivity 
their sexual purity and their financial generosity that had such an impact that turned the Roman world upside down. And then the last one, we end here because this is where we're headed over the next eight weeks, eight, nine weeks, extraordinary prayer. What is extraordinary prayer? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Extraordinary prayer is found in the fourth chapter where they don't pray to God. Take the heat off. God, I want a better job. God, I want better neighbors. God, I want a nicer home. They're not, playing, they're not praying that. It's extraordinary prayer. God, show us your glory. We want you more than anything. Extraordinary prayer is what Moses did in... Um, in Exodus 33, this is what he, he basically prays. He says, God, show us your glory. How will people know us to be different from anybody else? Show us your glory. In fact, this is what he said. God, we would rather have your glory, your presence, your power, your peace in our lives and wander around in the wilderness for 40 years than to go into the promised land without your glory. All the wealth in the world does not compare. All the success in the world does not compare all the fortune and fame in the world does not compare to having your glo- glory. Show us your glory. That's extraordinary prayer. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what you see with the early church. They're doing that. And so let me end with this, Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That's my challenge to you. When is the last time you sought after God with all of your heart? When was the last time you sought after God with all of your heart? I've got a couple other verses I would encourage you to read and use these as prayers. Uh, Isaiah 62, let me give you kind of the paraphrase of Isaiah 62. Basically, he's saying, I'm not going to take no for an answer, and I'm going to take no rest and give God no rest until he makes Jerusalem, his people, his church, the praise of the earth. I'm not going to stop praying until God beautifies and empowers his church with his manifested presence. That's my prayer for here. I mean, can you imagine if all of us begin to pray that? God, we're not gonna stop praying. We're not gonna stop crying out to you until you beautify your church with your manifested presence. So when we come in here week in and week out, oh my goodness, we are lit up with fervor and excitement for you and all that you're doing in our lives. Isaiah 64 is another one I'll pray to, uh, this morning, I was, uh, it was this last year, I was at the House of Prayer over here on Yorkshire and 35th Avenue, my, my buddy pastors the church that's there, and the gal got up and read Isaiah 64 and then prayed it, and man, I was just overcome and overwhelmed with the presence of God. And the same thing happened to me, Nancy and I, this last weekend, we were uh, in Prescott and we were at the Wild Iris, sounds like a bar, doesn't it? It's a coffee shop, downtown Prescott. And I begin to read this, and I was just overwhelmed with the presence of God as I read this. This is my prayer for us this morning. And I begin to cry sitting in Wild Iris. <laughs> That's weird. And uh, Nancy thought it was just my cold that I was fighting, so I kept it hidden from her, but uh, she knew. But this is what it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. He's speaking metaphorically. The difficulties we face, they would melt, boom, with your presence in my life. Those insurmountable things that you're facing, they're nothing when you begin to see the greatness and the goodness of God. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. It's powerful. It's powerful. God, uh, light us up. Let us see your glory, unlike we have ever seen before or ever experienced before. Show us your glory here at Desert Breeze. And may we, may we be a church that, that wants this theological depth and we are, 
We are characterized by sweet repentance and vibrant worship and intimate fellowship and contagious evangelism and social concern and, and extraordinary prayer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.